Hi, this is Chris from Canopy and Stars, and welcome to A Life More Wild. In this episode, we're looking at how relationships with nature can turn on a single moment. Later, we'll be talking to writer and gardener Alice Vincent about how a single flower led to a life of growing and gardening. But first, we're in a London park talking to Sophie Morgan. I don't know, I get a sense of calm here. I, I suppose because the city is so busy and I, I live in a block of flats, so I'm surrounded by people and then I come down here not far from the flat and it's like, ah, oh, trees everywhere. And there really are so many trees in this park. I love it. Little sanctuary. Sophie is a presenter and writer who lives for the outdoors. She grew up wild in the woodlands of Sussex, but at the age of 18, a car accident meant she'd be a wheelchair user for life. We've come to the park near her home to hear about how she reinvented her relationship with nature, some of the challenges she finds with access, and how she's learned to like her disability. I'm Sophie Morgan. I'm a TV presenter and a disability advocate, and we are currently sitting outside the Southwark Park Cafe in Southwark Park. On one side is a large sort of playing field really, looking a bit scorched because it's so hot at the moment. And on the other side we have a really lovely lake that's covered in green algae and there's lots of geese messing around and some swans. They look like they're getting in a bit of a fight. And a beautiful, beautiful willow tree. I come here because it's really close to where I live and when I came here I couldn't believe how big it was and how lovely it was and how much there was within it as well so I kind of come down here just to go for a walk in inverted commas because I use a wheelchair it's also really really accessible it's got paths running all the way through it so I exercise here sometimes on my handbike or I just kind of go for a little, little wander. The thing about my life in London is I always feel of it, it's sort of like a base that I come back to because I travel so much. And when I come back to London and I'm in the city, I quite quickly start to feel claustrophobic because I'm not a city girl. And so I use the park really just to kind of go, right, okay, there's some trees, there's some greenery. And then, you know, get back into the busyness of London again. So we can go now from the park and just follow the, the pathway all the way around the lake and then there's just, yeah, there's a load of different routes. I don't really tend to have one set route. I just kind of follow my nose and see where it's quiet. I like to kind of go where, you know, where there aren't other people because you get a lot of kids coming down here to play sport. There's tennis courts, that kind of thing. It's a proper city park, you know, people really use it for everything. But I often come here, put my headphones on, go into a little zone and just wander around. So I grew up in East Sussex. We were in the middle of nowhere <laughs> um, in a tiny little cottage called Little Birches because it was surrounded by birch trees. It was actually on the Ashdown Forest, which is kind of well known around the world for being the home of Winnie the Pooh. So we weren't far from 100 Acre Woods and like where the story was based. And yeah, and I grew up there with a little brother, my mum and my dad and we always had lots of animals, like my mum always had dogs. She used to be a gun dog trainer when I was a kid. So we had loads of dogs in the house and we had cats and all sorts. And, and, and really it was a very kind of, I call it feral upbringing. I was always out in the woods 
building dens, playing hide and seek and that kind of stuff. It was really, really lovely. Although as I grew up, I remember feeling, oh God, I don't want to live here anymore. I want to be in the city. And feeling really resentful because there was no bus nearby or no, you know, nothing of any excitement. But now I'm older, I'm like, oh, I'd love to live in that environment again. But, you know, work keeps me elsewhere. But it was definitely a really idyllic and very privileged, but peaceful, happy upbringing. And I mean, my mum had horses. She kept them locally with friends. And so I spent most of my childhood sort of either on a horse or running around the woods, really, which was great. <laughs> yeah, look, if we should go up here this way, there's a little bit, it's not all fully accessible, but there's a beautifully paved, sort of separate part to the park where you can come in here and then you can see the lake from a different angle. So I grew up kind of wild and then as I became a teenager that sort of wildness then took on a different form and I became quite difficult and firstly quite rebellious. I was just really naughty. I got in trouble a lot at school and I pushed back against authority quite a lot and it got quite out of hand and I ended up having to <laughs> leave one school and go to another school and, and then yeah, I got sent to school in Scotland and did my A-levels up there and then in the summer, in the August, I got my A-level results and then I went to a party in the evening to celebrate the results and celebrate leaving school and celebrate the start of a new chapter and going into sort of adult life and celebrate going to uni and, you know, all those things that were happening at that time. After the party, I drove home to a friend's house and I crashed my car and was paralysed in an instant, really. So I kind of marked that was the end of my childhood, you know, and then the beginning of my adult life was completely different. I think for, for me, I often think of my disability as like a reset and I almost became zero again. So that beginning decade of my disabled life, which was me from 18 to 20, but really if you started again as a paraplegic, zero to 10, I was working things out. I was sort of testing myself, testing other people. I was angry a lot. I was sort of fighting back and, and I was sad and I was sort of, I was all of the emotions, I think. I remember very vividly feeling intimidated by the outdoors because I used a wheelchair and wheelchairs are fantastic in so many ways. They, they liberate people like me, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to get anywhere without a wheelchair. And I, and I, I have a, a dependence on it that's, that's hard to even explain. But wheelchairs are limited, they're seriously limited. And, and one area that they really struggle with is, you know, the outdoors. <laughs> so I felt very much like, oh gosh, I'm, I don't know how I'm gonna ever be able to access that world again. And the cities themselves were not always accessible, but far more so than a, you know, muddy field. And so I moved to London actually, not long after my crash. I moved here because as much as I'd like to have lived in the countryside, I knew I would be really limited in what I could do. So the city became the playground that I felt a lot more comfortable in. But I always, always felt really like I wanted to be able to access, you know, the countryside. And, and it's only really in the last, I'd say, decade 
steps that I've been able to do that. And I think it's because I've found more assistive devices, such as this mobility device that connects onto the front of a wheelchair and makes it into a scooter. It's amazing for getting me, helping me to mobilize outside and on terrain that's not very easy to go on. And so I could take my wheelchair into a field and I, you know, it's got its limitations, but it can get me in over the sand or it can get me over some really difficult terrain that otherwise my chair would really struggle with. It's extraordinary to, to think that just one invention, you know, it could make the difference between me living a life that feels limited and limiting and, and, then, and then a life that feels full of opportunity. But it is as simple as that. I'm very dependent on technology and, and until we see innovation that helps people like me get into, you know, the world... It, it's it, we can't ramp everything you know we can't have concrete paths everywhere we want to go off that track and into the wilderness and into the wild but it's really difficult I have never really found one piece of kit that can give me total freedom We're now going into the Ada Salter garden, which is this almost like a park within the park. And it's got these lovely, beautiful pathways and then bricked archways that are covered in wisteria. They're shaped in a semicircle. And when you're within them and you look down them, they're all pointing towards the lake and the willow trees. And it's lovely. Slowly, slowly, I started to carve out a purpose for my life, and that's when things started to calm down. My relationship with my disability became one that was much more healthy. Instead of going, why me? What is this? What am I doing? And how far can I push my body? And what can I do that's really going to challenge what I think my paralysis means? And I was very much sort of pushing, pushing, pushing. And then as I started to work out that I actually could use my belligerence and my temper and my anger and all those sort of behaviours that I had as a teenager that I had in my early 20s that had kind of led me off uh, you know and got me into trouble if I could repurpose them and put them forward into this like right why did this happen I started to question what that reason was and that's when I started to go actually maybe this did happen and maybe I could like my disability and maybe this is all going to work out and I was right <laughs> In one respect, being in this park is lovely because it's like my little dip your toe back into what you're familiar with and what you enjoy and what you like whilst you're living in London. And it serves a purpose to sort of calm me down and, and reset. But it's also great because it's accessible and I can get around. There's paths, you know, it's, it, it doesn't make me feel unwelcome. But I also feel it's not the kind of nature I really love. You know, it's like a kind of happy middle ground where I can go, oh, I can get here. Oh, it's in London. Oh, it, it ticks those boxes. But, you know, ideally I'd be out with my bare feet in the mud running around in a field that a wheelchair couldn't really get into. So it's a sort of love-hate relationship. But at the end of the day, it's just so nice to have this space in such, such close proximity to my home. And I just, I love, I love the tree. I love the willow trees. They're my favorite. I thought if I would be a tree, I'd be a willow tree. Because they're like, 
they're floppy, like my like, legs uh, don't, they just dangle. And they love water, when I love water. So I love being in the water, I love swimming. That's a nice place to come to. Oh, my grandfather is 98. Yes, and he's still around, but I want to leave past his age. Every now and again, you bump into PTs doing their private sessions with their clients in the park because they use it instead of going to the gym. So you can hear one coming up now. <laughs> Looking for longevity. Hey, look. I want to live to be 100 and odd. Have a good day. I hope so too. Have a great day. Sophie's life turned on a dramatic moment, but Alice Vincent's nature epiphany was a tiny thing. The sight of a single flower sprouting out of a crack on her balcony. It inspired her to grow, garden and write, but not, as we discovered to our surprise, to move to the countryside. She'd much rather bring natural beauty into the city. Alice, thank you very much for coming on. Tell us where you are right now. What nature can you see? I imagine you to be surrounded by plants, but you appear not to be. <laughs> Uh, the thing is, they're just out of just out of shot. Uh, no, I'm actually in um, the room where I work, which is north facing. So it's not amazing for the house plants. I tend to have them where they're happiest, which is in in the other side of the building. But I do have the best view of the garden here. So I am looking out, and um, <laughs> my main view of the flower bed is actually blocked by my laundry currently. Um, but Beyond that, the peonies have just come out. They are blousy and pink and fantastic and slightly ostentatious as peonies always are. But there's masses of fennel, there's some marigolds, there are some sweet peas and some alliums. There's a lot of green perennials that are really having the first moment out of the ground in a proper way since last summer. And the roses, we are right on the cusp of having this year's roses too. So take us back to where it all began. I've heard about you sort of growing up in your grandparents' garden and how much you love that. What's your sort of abiding memory of that, that feeling? I have such a visceral um, kind of smell and taste memory of um, my grandfather's greenhouse, which just the smell of pelagonium leaves and the smell of tomatoes, that hot kind of stuffy, fertile smell that always takes me back to being small and in a greenhouse and eating very stubby little carrots fresh out of the earth as well. And it's so sweet and crunchy. But for me, with regards to your question of how it all started, I'd probably say that my kind of desire and, and compulsion to garden began in London on a balcony four stories up. Not the easiest place to garden, I would imagine. It's not known, it was north facing, but I also didn't know any better because I'd not really gardened before and I didn't have anyone to teach me. It was this funny thing that I didn't really know about myself and I certainly didn't feel I could go to somebody else and be like, will you help me in case it was so preposterous. So it wasn't something you were looking to rediscover then? No, it was only really later when I started trying to trace my connection with the earth. And actually, that's something that I do look at in Rootbound, which is a book that I wrote and came out a couple of years ago. But it's something that I'm also looking at in a book that will come out in spring called Why Women Grow, which examines women's relationship with the earth. And it was only kind of in hindsight that I thought, oh, right, yeah, this goes back to my childhood and this goes back to what I grew up among. 
But as part of the research for the new book, I did actually go back to those gardens, those formative gardens, and realise that actually, I'm not sure that's where it came from after all. Spoiler. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think actually it's something about being in cities. And I love living in cities and I get a lot of energy from cities. But it's about being in a city that has made me perceive plants in the outside world in a very different way and has encouraged me to garden. How so in kind of realising their importance? Because you see less of them? You do see less, but I think also it's a myth and, and a truth that you see less nature in cities. You know, we don't have the kind of abundance and largesse and the wildness of the nature that you get in rural areas, undeniably. But I think there's a lot more in cities that people don't realise. And I think nature's adapted quite cannily to city living. And also the most encouraging and hopeful thing about nature in cities is actually you can coax it back in very easily with how you garden and how um, you engage with the world and what kind of stuff you put out. It will. It's amazing what turns up. And then I've seen you talk about a sort of a circularity, you know, you're caring for nature and you get that care back. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people find great solace in nature and, and it's been scientifically shown as well. Author Lucy Jones wrote a book called Losing Eden, a fantastic book all about the um, scientific relationship of nature on our bodies and our minds and what it does. And, and so it's not just coincidence. That everyone's like, oh, I feel better after walking in the woods, right? Like we actively do uh, when we engage. But I also think there's something very gratifying about seeing the change that you can make in the world for kind of species and existences and, and biology that isn't human. It's incredibly gratifying in seeing plants flourish and seeing ecological communities grow up in places where even as swiftly as a year ago, they just weren't there. And you get that even from your from your small city garden? Yeah, so when I, the for London standards, it's quite big, but by anyone else's standards, it is a modest garden. And it hadn't been neglected at all when I turned up. It was in, you know, it was tidy, but it didn't really have much in the way of planting variety or flower beds. Uh, I had no, I am an organic gardener and I had no understanding the extent of organic or otherwise nutrients that gone into the soil were a stone's throw from the river so obviously there's a lot of history in that soil and you dig up all sorts when you're working in the garden but within six months a year of kind of making my own compost and planting organically and okay maybe cheating with the bird feeder but you know <laughs> not using pesticides and letting things be I've spent most of the last couple of weeks watching young blue tits and, and bigger blue tits feed on the aphids that are gathering on the roses, which I put in. And that's because I don't use pesticides. But also because if you leave any pest long enough, even slugs and snails, which are quite devastating, you leave them long enough, something else will turn up. <laughs> I opened the back door the other day and found a fox uh, who is quite regular here. And he does cause low-level havoc. But I also, I, I'm pretty sure I saw him having a good go on a, on a snail. So I'm like, well, this is great, right? This is a cohesive situation. And I'm not, I don't, I know I've seen the birds turn up. I know they weren't there before. It's not taken long to bring them in. What was, what was that first thing you grew on the balcony? Herbs. Right. Yeah, basil, mint, thyme. They all died <laughs> quite quickly. <laughs> 
I was about to ask. I wondered if that was the, the north-facing, inexpert approach. Yeah, oh, it's interesting how you can't grow basil in, uh, yeah, in that situation. That Mediterranean herb wasn't loving life. But I think what the greatest thing that grew out of that first uh, summer and seasons, I spent two, three years growing on that balcony, which was sunny for all of its north-facingness. Just learning, the biggest thing I grew, I suppose, was an enthusiasm and a kind of addiction, a compulsion for plants. And it wasn't really just about growing them because I think like any engagement in nature, whether that's bird watching or rock climbing or whatever you want to do, wild swimming, it's a heightening of your awareness. So I began to, I use the verb translate, but I began to understand the plants and the greenery around the city in an entirely new way. I started looking more intently at what people were growing in their gardens. I started looking at how parks were planted up. You know, once you click into it, you start seeing it everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. We are sitting and talking about nature, but I would like to say I have some complexities around the word because I think othering it suggests that we're not part of it. We absolutely are. Yes, it's easier and both more cumbersome to say the outside world or plants. <laughs> but, but yeah, of course we're part of it. And that's why I think people get so much gratification from growing food and eating it and, and feeling more reliant on the land. Mm. And feeling a part of it again. Yeah, exactly. And it's also why I think if you're removed from it, it's very difficult to ground yourself in a literal sense. Because what is more grounding than seeing, you know, where you are in regards to, say, the cycle of the moon or the seasons or when, when the sun rises? Those things are beyond our control in a huge way. Yeah, there's an enormous a perspective there. It's almost an equivalent of the thing people talk about when they look up at the stars and you think, oh, hang on, if I'm part of this enormous process, how can I be worried about my tiny things when there are these giant cycles sort of rolling on in the background? Yeah. And it was exactly that, that realisation that came to me that I wrote about in Rootbound, which was kind of the triggering point for that entire life change was that I underwent um, a very unexpected relationship breakdown and had to move and various other things kind of fell apart and it was a grim June afternoon and I was feeling completely heartbroken to the extent that I wasn't even going out onto the balcony but I'd walked up to the balcony door which was made of glass and I saw through it that this poppy had bloomed against the slick concrete of the balcony floor and the rain hurtling in this heavy grey London sky, there was this perfect, perfect white poppy. And it was so beautiful and it was so unexpected that it made me literally gasp. And I, I realised then I was that those poppies were going to bloom and then the petals would fall off and it would go to seed and then the cycle would renew and all of this stuff that was one tiny part of a huge system that would continue regardless of what we were doing in our lives. And that was so reassuring. It's like, if that's happening, then, then I can recover as well. Why planting particularly? Was there ever anything else in contention for being that, that thing that gave you happiness, connection? It's a good question and it hasn't been asked that much before and I think it's because on paper I was doing a lot of cool other things. So I was a music journalist, I got to go to festivals and parties and I travelled and all of that was fun but it didn't give me purpose in the way that gardening did and I think that's because of the pace 
And that gardening is actually an innately slow activity. You can't rush it. You cannot make seeds grow that much faster. Even if you applied like all of science and a load of technology and grow lights and super speed plant food, if such a thing exists, you'd still have to wait the inevitable amount of time for something to emerge. When I was working and living in an existence where I felt like I had a lot of autonomy and a lot of that was slipping from me, I really relished the fact that gardening took life on its own hands and that it surprised me. It was endlessly surprising to me in a way that I didn't get a sense of surprise or celebration even from the other aspects of my life. In the sense that you would be able to walk out onto a balcony and see a poppy in bloom that you didn't know was going to. It still happens daily now in the garden every morning. Pretty much as soon as I wake up, I will try and force myself into the garden because I like seeing bright light as a means of waking up. And I will have a little look around the flower beds and and you'll just suddenly see something in flower that you didn't even know was there. Or you'll see a whole perennial has just popped up while you weren't looking. And and that for me is, oh, it's just like a little delivery of of goodness every day. I love it. So what would your first tip be for anyone looking to sort of not necessarily get into gardening, but to find that sort of deeper connection? Look. It's really as simple as looking. Plant blindness is um, a huge, uh, I'm not saying problem, but a huge situation that a lot of the population have. Plant blindness is as in the sense of not being able to recognise or even be aware of the greenery around you. Because if you've never been grown up shown what, what is what, or this is a tree, or enjoy this flower, then you're probably not going to notice it. That's part of the problems why we've got an ecological disaster is because we don't really know what we're losing a lot of the time. But what to look for, even if it's as simple as you go on your walk to work or to drop the kids off or whatever you're going to the shop, try and take a note of what the trees are doing. Have they got leaves? What colour are those leaves? Do they seem bright? Do they seem dark? Are they crispy? Do they look fresh? Are they big? Are they small? Are they round? Are they pointy? It's really take yourself through these steps of trying to look closely at something. Because when you do, you'll start to, that's how you start to develop your taste in plants as well. A lot of people ask me, what should I plant? It's like saying, well, what colour do you want to paint your bedroom? You know, there's all the colours in the paint chart and I can't be the one to tell you. I love the idea. I mean, if you start looking, you'll start noticing the changes. Yes. And then you start noticing the seasons and then you can sort of, it'll creep up on you. Yeah. And also then you give yourself access to the greatest thing of all, which is noticing the changes. I think so much of gardening, certainly for me, is anticipation. I love the anticipation. Like it's, you know, it's great that the peonies are out now. I'm very glad they're there. But that doesn't mean I'm busy looking, being like, yeah, but the roses, the roses are going to come soon. There's so always something else to look forward to, even in the depths of autumn and winter, that quietening down well then you're like oh maybe we'll get a really good frost there's always something and it's a very for me it's a very useful means of holding on to time when everything seems to be going very quickly even when everything seems incredibly bleak there will be something growing even in a city and that is hugely heartening for me Sophie and Alice both reforged a lost bond with nature and I hope that their very different stories show how there is no right way to be in touch with the outdoors 
In the episode notes, you'll find links to Sophie's latest adventures, her new show, as well as all of Alice's books and articles. Either of them could end up sending you off on an exciting new green path. Please rate, review, and subscribe to A Life More Wild wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you soon for the last episode in this series, a little bonus episode with architect George Clark. <laughs>